This is Annie Grace, and you're listening to this Naked Mind podcast, where without judgment, pain, or rules, we explore the role of alcohol in our lives and culture. Hi, this is Annie Grace, and welcome to this Naked Mind podcast. I am here today with Callie. Hi, Callie. Hi, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing good. Very cool. So why don't you kind of take us back to the beginning? Like where, where did the drinking thing sort of start for you? Okay. Um, well, um, I grew up in a household where, you know, my parents drank with dinner and things like that, but I didn't really um, try alcohol until high school. Um, it was just something that, you know, was cool to do and I wanted to fit in. And I mean, I would try it to see what this fun thing everybody was doing, but it wasn't really a big thing for me in high school. I was able to have like friendships and experiences without it. It wasn't a, it just wasn't a big part of my social, social life. Um, it wasn't until college where, um, I wasn't living with my parents anymore. And, you know, to finally have that freedom that I think drinking became something for, um, that was a really big part of my social life. Um, I was on the swimming team in college, so I couldn't drink every night. I had to kind of, there was this um, forced moderation happening in college. Um, we would drink on the weekends, though. I think we really, like, kind of let loose a lot on the weekends. And um, I think I learned in college that for a good time and to really relieve stress and to really, like, kind of um, let go, that alcohol was, like, a main part of that. Um, so all the swimmers on the swim team would definitely work hard during the week party hard on the weekend. Um, and there wasn't this just drinking for the taste or drinking like, um, like with a steak dinner or something like that. It was, we were drinking to like, to get drunk and have a really good time and just like not really be ourselves anymore. Um, then towards the end of college, I, um, ended up, um, becoming a Christian. I went to a church in college. And so I became a Christian in my late years of um, college. And at that point, I, um, the message from that church was, well, if you're a Christian, then you know, drinking is a sin. You shouldn't be drinking. So I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to drink. So I tried really hard to not drink for the rest of college. Kind of succeeded at that, but um, not 100%. But in my early 20s, like that was my mindset. I was like, I'm going to be a committed Christian. I'm going to, I'm, I'm not going to drink. Um, and it, it worked for a little while. Um, I think the older I got into my 20s and I started to meet Christians who that really wasn't a big deal anymore and there wasn't this delineation between someone who's a Christian and someone's not. In fact, like sometimes, you know, the biggest drinkers can be in Christian groups. It's just not something that is um, like looked down upon or frowned upon. So since it wasn't frowned upon, I started to do it again, especially since I got married at 26. So I had my spouse and we were doing social activities and so we would drink. Um, I feel like in my 20s, my main coping mechanism wasn't alcohol. I didn't turn to that when I had the negative emotions. Um, for me, it was more eating. Like I had an eating disorder. Like I would turn to food for comfort, and that was what helped me check out and numb out and um, not feel bad feelings. And um, I knew that I didn't want to be in that state. I didn't like having that eating disorder and it was taking up so much of my mind space that I didn't really think about alcohol. It wasn't something that I was monitoring or worrying about. Although when I look back, I think I was also using it um, to help me. And of course, I wasn't drinking in moderation very much. Like when I did drink, I would drink a lot. Like my goal was to um, be tipsy, um, to be uh, a little bit over that line. It was... Um, I don't think I've ever drank um, just a little bit. Like, so when I drank, I would drink like, to feel um, at least intoxicated. Um, but it wasn't until 
I started to, from my, see my first counseling for the eating disorder in my 20s, so I started to kind of um, figure out some things that were going on inside of me and understand where these emotions were coming from. So I was starting to have a lot more like um, self-awareness and growing. Um, so I really, my eating disorder kind of wrapped up towards the, my early 30s, and that wasn't really a thing anymore. And so I was so um, glad to be past that. But did, you, did you do specific things to really overcome that? Or like, did it sort of just naturally evolve to where yeah. that wasn't so central in your life, that level of control of food? Well, I did almost everything I could think of. It took a good 10 years plus. Um, but I think some of the most important things were um, – starting to pay attention to what can food do for you, like a physical substance that you put in your body. Is that really gonna like help you feel better? Like I was trying to fill this emotional hunger with physical food and I started to really understand that and be more, uh, pay more attention to what I needed and what would make, like what would help me at the moment. And so I think that self-awareness in the moment helped a lot. I started to relearn how to eat. Like if, if I'm hungry, then eat something. If I'm not hungry, then ask myself, why do I have this desire to eat? What am I trying to do here? And that really helped. But I did see a counselor and started to understand why I was feeling, you know, just the feelings I was feeling from my early childhood and just experiences I've had. Um, that was, it was a long period of growth, but I think the most important thing was just being um, present to understanding, almost like what your book does with alcohol, just um, unveiling like the, what's behind the curtain of food. Like you think it's going to do something for you, and when you start to realize it's not helping and it's actually hurting, that can be the beginning to your healing journey, I think. So yeah, um, so, yeah. so uh, when I, oh, I had my first baby at 32, so I think that was 30 as well. So I think that was also another thing when you kind of realize what your body can do and you really um, want to start taking care of it and you start to think outside of yourself. And, um, and when you're eating, when you're pregnant, you're trying to eat to like take care of the baby. And I think that also is kind of a solidifying thing that really helped. Um, so I had my first child at 30. Um, and then I had another child at 32. And I was still working. But then when that second child um, was one, I stopped working and became a stay-at-home mom for the first time and I tell people like it was I think that was really hard because I didn't have the ramp up to like being home with your kids all day long it was like all of a sudden I was home with them all day long and I had this one and three and a half year old that were very very hard they were very wild and hyper and crazy and I, it was very hard for me to be with them all day every day um I see some moms who do it and just love it. I think I really struggled with that. I still do. Um, it's just kind of tiring for me. I'm a little bit of, I'm an extrovert sometimes, but sometimes I just really need that quiet time and I just didn't, wasn't getting it. Um, and since I didn't have to go to work anymore every day, I think it became a lot easier to drink more often. So instead of drinking just on the weekends or maybe just two or three times a week, I was like almost wanting to drink, starting to want to drink every day. Um, but I knew that that wouldn't, be that didn't sound right to me either so I started to have the tug of war like where I don't want to drink this much so I'm going to moderate and I'm going to try really hard to you know just drink what you're allowed to drink right up to the line and then not drink too much and not get a problem I didn't want to develop a problem um so I was really struggling holding it together um and I do that pretty well. I, I'm able to, from the outside, look like I have everything together. I'm pretty good at hiding that. And so I was hiding it, um, this internal battle 
I think even my husband would say, I think it's okay what you're, what you're doing and what you're drinking. It's just very normal. And I think everybody would have said that, like, you're just a normal drinker, but they wouldn't have known from the, like what was going on in my internal struggle. Um, and I wasn't really ready to admit it. And I don't think I really understood it either. Um, it was just kind of this growing worry inside of me that like, I don't really want to be doing this. I wish I could just drink a little bit. I wish I could just drink one glass and be okay. But I was that person who would be at dinner and like, you'd have one glass and I'd be wondering, okay, when's the next one going to come? And, um, I just, I knew that like the intern, I knew that internal battle, um, was starting to grow and starting to bother me. And I was journaling about it too, because I do my prayer journals. And like, when I look back, like there, I mentioned alcohol several times without actually like full blown admitting that I wish I could stop or something like that. I just was always like, okay, I'm just praying that I could drink a little bit less or, um, or that I didn't need it or something like that. I would, I started to pray about it a lot in my thirties. So, um, so then fast forward, now I have three kids and, um, we moved to a new city about two years ago. And, um, I think that I can't, I'm sorry, Sadie. Um, sorry, my third is here. <laughs> um, so anyway, when, um, we moved to a new city and I had just had the baby, like literally she was 21 days old at our closing and we're in a new city and it's winter. And I was, um, um, I really wanted to connect with people, but I wasn't. And so I was super lonely. And, um, I think I had some postpartum feelings and my husband was having his own depression. And I think that's really when it really started to get to, a, to a, my drinking got to a level that really bothered me. Like, cause I was, I didn't know anybody and I was, I was pretty upset and um, didn't have anybody to talk to. And so, um, I was definitely bothered and I downloaded an app on my phone. I can't remember the name of it, but it kept track of how many drinks you would have during the week. And um, so I would track everything and try to be really like accurate. And um, then I looked up what were the guidelines and I said, Oh no, like I'm above the guidelines. Like I would be in the red on the bar graph and that really bothered me. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to stay within the guidelines. Like I've got to do this. Like I don't want to have a problem. So, um, I tried really hard to stay within the guidelines and I was just not doing it. And so I deleted the app several times just to delete my data and start all over again. I just kept trying. Um, so that was kind of my headspace when I um, stumbled upon your book. I had been on um, TED Talks actually researching ADHD because my oldest has ADHD and I was just watching TED Talks about ADHD. And then you know how like sample videos or um, other videos pop up and you start to like click around and by, by the time you're finished, you're watching something totally unrelated. Um, but I fell on a um, TED talk by um, a lady who wrote a book about women and drinking. And it was kind of about women like being marketed to and all this stuff. I thought it was really interesting. So I went on Amazon to look up her book and that's where I saw your book pop up. And I'm not sure why it um, struck me. I think it was the title. It was something about controlling your drinking. <laughs> I was like, well, I want to be able to control my drinking. I didn't want to give it up. I wasn't thinking that I was ever going to give it up. I mean, if you had said that I could, um, live without alcohol, I'd be like, I just, I just didn't think that was possible. Um, so I listened to your book on audio book. And at the beginning of the book, when you said something about how um, you don't have to do anything, just listen to the book and it'll work. Like it'll work on your unconscious mind while you're listening to it. I just really doubted that. <laughs> I didn't think that it was going to do anything, but I was definitely willing to listen to it. And I listened to it, um, once and started to feel like, okay, like when I would, when I would drink wine, I'd noticed the things that you pointed out. And, um, 
it started to be like, it started to work and on my mind. And I started to recognize these things. Like I'm like, I would be having drinks with, um, at a event or something. And I would notice that I wasn't connecting with the person I was talking to. I wasn't remembering what we were talking about. I wasn't, um, fully present and I wasn't being myself. And I started to notice those things. And, um, so I listened to your book a couple more times on audiobook. Like I really wanted to, um, like get it in there good. <laughs> and I also um, made a list of all the reasons that I drink, like everything that drinking does for me. And I wanted to be able to combat each one of those reasons. So with my list, I would, on my iPhone app, I, on my notes, I would just write down the reason. And then later it would come to me why that reason wasn't a valid reason. So I kind of knocked off several of them real quick, um, like having a good time um, socializing, was obviously not as fun with alcohol because I didn't feel like I could be present and really listening to that person. And that's really important to me is to feel like I'm connecting with someone. Like I want to, you know, get past the small talk and really start to get to know people. And um, that wasn't happening. Like if you're drinking, because you just kind of get scatterbrained and you're not paying attention. Um, so some of the reasons were really easy to knock off the list. Um, but as I got down the list, um, some of the reasons were really hard. Like, um, Alan Carr's book says that there shouldn't be any reason left, any benefit at all for alcohol before you stop. But there really was a benefit for me. Um, I think the numbing, I wanted to be numb. Like I wanted that feeling because sometimes my negative emotions or my hard day would make me just want to feel the numbness. And um, so it actually did do that for me. Like alcohol will numb you. Um, but when I pushed past that, I realized that if I wanted to numb myself for that evening or that situation. It was gonna numb more than just that. Like Brene Brown says, like you can't selectively numb an emotion. You're gonna numb other things in your life. So I realized that if I used alcohol when parenting was hard, I was gonna become a numb mother. Like my kids were gonna have a numb mom and like I would slowly disappear. Like I wouldn't be me. And so I was robbing them of like a present mom. And um, in addition to that, in the book, I think you talk about how, like, if you take that to its logical ending is then you would, like, just want to disappear. And that is true sometimes. Sometimes I do just want to disappear or feel this, like, longing to just not exist or something. And that's pretty extreme. But um, when you really look at it, is that really what you want? So at some point, I had to decide, like, yes, I want to feel numb, but all these other things, I just... I don't want to go down that road. I'd rather show up and be present than like stick my hand head in the sand and just hide for a while. And then when you come back up, your problems are still there. So that was the, probably the final reason I was nervous about going through life without having something to like check out just to have a little break from myself and escape. Um, but I figured, like you said, you have to just kind of try it on and try alcohol free living and just to start seeing how, it can work out if you don't turn, if you don't turn immediately to this quick fix, what can happen? So it was right before Halloween this fall. So that was about six months ago. Um, you had said, don't try to stop drinking until you've read the book or whatever. So I really read like 10 books before I really started or tried or stopped drinking because I didn't want to stop too soon because I didn't want to have the fail and restart and fail and restart. I wanted to be like ready to commit, ready to jump in. So I read a lot of books that you suggested and um, worked on my list. And, and there was just this one night where I had, I had had some wine and I just felt like it wasn't doing anything for me. And I was like, I think I'm ready. So the next day I was like, this is my first day. And it was the week before Halloween 
And I remember like Halloween came the next week and Halloween's usually the time you walk around the neighborhood with your wine and everybody had wine, everybody. I just noticed it so clearly not having it, how much everybody, um, Halloween's a time for parents to drink. <laughs> so I didn't drink on Halloween. Um, I had a really good time. We were kind of new to this neighborhood. So I was able to meet a lot of people that night and I remembered everything and I remembered my kids and I went to bed and had a really good sleep and woke up the next day. And I was like, okay, that was a really good experience. So I feel like a lot of my um, sober first experiences have proven that the list is right. And um, so that's kind of what I've been experiencing over the six months. Like every time I have uh, an experience where I'm like, well, we're going on vacation. I'm supposed to drink. That's what you do on vacation. Um, I go on the vacation. I'm a little nervous about it. And I feel like I'm going to have all this temptation. But then once I get there and I go through it and I like really ask myself, like I always do a debrief, like, okay, how was that? Like, what would it have been like if you had drank alcohol? And then what would it have been like if you hadn't, or what was it like now that you didn't? And I was able to compare and it always gave me like, okay, this is good. I'm on the right track. Like there've been I haven't had an experience where <laughs> during the debrief I said, oh man, I really missed out. I wish I had drunk. I wish I had drank. That would have been so much more fun. Um, there have been times like where I didn't have much fun, but that's because it wasn't fun. And it, now that I know that, I know who I like, who I want to be friends with, who I want to hang out with, what I want to do. I know more about myself. So that's, you learn from that too. Um, but one thing after not drinking um, over six months, I have noticed a lot of feelings, like a lot of um, you know, you have a, if you have a glass of water that has dirt in it and then you let the dirt settle, it's at the bottom so the water looks clear and you're good. <laughs> but then once you kind of stir it up, you realize, oh my gosh, there's all this stuff here. So I have been dealing with a lot of um, things that I had stuffed over the years. And so I think my husband would say I was a little bit more emotional at first and kind of a mess. Like I would, I just had these big crying sessions and big like um, just feelings, just feeling things. Um, but I think that's good because I feel like I'm moving through them instead of, experiencing a negative feeling, sticking my head in the sand, and then it pops back up again later, just kind of avoiding it versus feeling it, kind of dealing with it, knowing it might come back around again, but I feel like I'm progressing. Um, I think I really was stuck. Like I was stuck. I wasn't growing as a person. I wasn't, um, my relationships weren't really growing. Um, but now like I have my journal so I can look back and see what the kinds of things that I was worrying about then and the kinds of things I'm thinking about now and I can I really do feel like I'm starting to come alive and feel like myself again so yeah it's been six months um so some of the things I've learned <laughs> that have been really um really really notable um is that I didn't realize how um embarrassing drunk people can be so now when I go to something and I'm talking to somebody and they've been drinking I really I see the slurred words and the you know they're Lipstick might be like not quite on right, and you just and they're not really looking at you. I'm like, oh my gosh, is this what I looked like? And I'm like, I don't want to look like that. Like I really don't. And then um, some other things is uh, that I have about 112 waking hours in my week. I sleep a lot, um, so out of the 112 waking hours in my week, um, alcohol really only took up six or seven hours. Like I did that for six hours maybe in a week. And so I feel like even though it feels like a big thing to not do anymore, it was only six hours. Like it, but it, it impacted all the other hours. Like if I was having the best time ever for six of the hours where I was drinking, it impacted every other hour of the week. It made me tired, irritable, um, just not as healthy. Um, so that was something that really struck me. I'm like, I'm only giving up something that I did for six hours. And then that was another thing is I used to think drinking was an activity. 
like, well, if I go to the party and I don't drink, what am I supposed to do? Like, like drinking is a war game or something. Like, but drinking is not an activity. Drinking is um, a substance that you take to feel intoxicated. So when you go to whatever you're doing, think to yourself, do I want to do this and be present or do I want to do this and be kind of checked out? And so I have that perspective. I'm like, okay, I don't, like, it's not something I need to do. Like, if I need something to do with my hands, like, figure that out. But it's not, like, an activity. Like, um, and if you're going somewhere and you feel like you need to drink, otherwise you'd be bored, then you're just going somewhere boring. So I'd like to work on that. <laughs> so um, those are some of the things I've kind of learned. And I just feel like I have more sober first to do. I'm still not, like, um, like solid or anything. I just, I just need to keep living life and seeing where this takes me. But so that's it. That's so great. I love the idea of that, that you don't ever go to, you know, a barbecue and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, the best thing about that was that beer I had, you know, yeah. that's not yeah. what you, you say, you know, you remember the jokes or the hanging out or the football game. You don't go to and say, geez, I'm so glad I was in that stadium for six hours. And the best part was, you know, you know, all the burping I did because of all the beer or whatever the case is, like, it's not, it isn't, but we make it that, you know, that's really an interesting perspective. And I, I also really like the waking hours because it's so true. Cause you're, you know, how many, especially if you're trying not to drink until the kids are in bed, really drink, maybe have a glass of wine with dinner or whatever, but then actually like not really start drinking until the kids are in bed, then the number of hours you're actually feeling that good feeling or that relief or whatever compared to the number of hours that you're feeling regretful or you're just thinking about it or you're consumed by it or you're desiring it or you're craving it. I mean, that's a huge, huge perspective, you know, six, you said six or seven hours compared to 112 um, that you're actually drinking compared to like all of those that you were having some sort of negative repercussion. That's just yeah. huge. Totally. And I actually, um, we went to a marriage counselor for um, some time and the marriage counselor actually gave me one of those tests to see if I was clinically depressed. And he said, every time I take the test, I was below the line. Like I was a depressed person. And I, I've always thought I'm a depressed person. Like I have depression, but honestly, I can say like, after not drinking alcohol, I really don't think I'm a depressed person. Like I really think it was, it was making me feel that bad, like the rest of the week. And I, that was kind of mind blowing to me because I really thought that I've always just had depression. I was wondering, how do I get rid of it? What do I do? Like, um, but I can tell you, like, I have not, I don't think I have the thoughts of a depressed person. I mean, I definitely feel sad. I feel emotions. I feel, but I really feel pretty good most of the time. Like I, I, I don't know. I guess I'm a happy person. <laughs> That's awesome. That's it's so true. And I mean, I had the same experience um, of really realizing that, after not drinking for about a year, it was like, huh, I don't think I need to be on all these meds that I've been taking for 17 years. Like I, I feel better than this. I actually started to feel like the medication I was on was numbing um, the highs and the lows, which is funny because when I was drinking, I wouldn't, I didn't notice that. Like I wasn't in touch enough with my emotions, either high or low to even notice that then all of a sudden I was on this medication. I'm like, huh, I'm not. And even things like you know, a, a sad movie would come on and I'd be sitting there like a zombie, not crying or something. And I'm like, I think this is the depression medication. It's not allowing me to feel, but actually not that I want to sit here crying, but I want to not feel, you know, dead inside. That's, that's interesting. So, um, yeah, I, I had that very similar experience. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's great. So um, I always sort of ask at the end, like, what would you, if you had to go back in time and, and really tell Callie about, you know, what, what life is like now, and especially the one, I know you said that the attractive thing about my book specifically was control alcohol, which yeah. I did that very intentionally because that's the only, I had no intention of not drinking. That was not even on my horizon or radar. Yeah. Um, and so if you had to go back and say like the person that couldn't even imagine that life would ever be tolerable without drinking, what would you tell her? Yeah. Well, I think I, old Callie would have thought that like, um, there were only two options, either like, um, drinking the way I was or having to like quit forever. And, um, or no, old Callie would have thought there were three options, drink the way I was or get to this moderate place or, stop drinking. And I think I would tell her that like the stopping of the stopping drinking is easier than trying to be moderate. Like mm -hmm. the work that was involved with moderation was just exhausting and mentally taxing. And you're constantly asking yourself like, should I drink tonight? No, I shouldn't drink tonight because I did yesterday and I want to make sure I don't drink three times this week. And then, okay, well, I'm just, I'm okay. I'll do it tonight, but I only have this much. And it's just, it's very taxing. And so I would have told old Callie that like, um, the option three of not drinking is so much easier. It just is. And you can have like free your mind for other things and you're not, you're not even really thinking about it. Like you kind of forget that it's there. And I would tell her that that's possible because I don't, I didn't think that was possible to do that and be happy about it. <laughs> like I want her to know that like you can actually enjoy your life and you can enjoy your experiences more and that it's a lot easier. And that's the option that you would want to choose if you get had more information. That's so great. And yeah, I think it's so true when we are in a place of desire for something, whether it's an experience or in this case, alcohol, we can't understand very easily. Desire feels, feels, it's a feeling. It's a, you know, an emotion that kind of takes us over that we don't actually realize is controlled by our thoughts and we don't realize it's controlled by our mind. So when you're desiring something, the idea of not desiring it mm -hmm. is so foreign and so impossible. It's like when you first fall in love, the idea of not having that feeling for that person, or when you first break up with somebody who you thought you were in love with, the idea of ever being okay again, mm -hmm. like it's so foreign because it doesn't feel like you have any control over it. And consciously you don't, like you have to really work on the subconscious beliefs and conditioning around it. But when you stop desiring that thing that you desired, then it's so effortless. You know, it's very same thing with a breakup. If you eventually will meet someone else and stop desiring, you know, there's, you know, old boyfriends in my life where I was like, okay, never ever going to survive, you know, and the amount of time or thought or energy, like haven't thought of them in 20 years. Yeah. You know? it's, it's such a non-issue, but it's so impossible to see that when you're in the midst of, of desire to say, how can desire change, you know, but it really can. It's really cool. Yeah. And even though sometimes I, I think to myself, like I'll go to the pool and I'll see other people drinking and what I'll, sometimes the thought fleeting thoughts will come into my mind. Like, Oh, I'm missing out on fun. Like that fleeting thought. When I really, I, I, I stop and I take my time and I just kind of think that through, like the, the, there's not desire there. Like, right. I think some people hear that thought and think, oh, I just really want to drink. Like when I like hear that little thought, it's just a fleeting little thought, like, oh, they're having fun and I'm not, I'm missing out. I stop and I think about through all the things I just talked about and I realize that I don't want to drink. It's just kind of almost like this um, residual 
thought patterns that are yeah. still there. And I guess I just have to kind of let them come. And then I, like you said, I don't hide from them. I just kind of think through it. And I, I usually come out with, I think it's going to be okay. <laughs> like, I'm going to be okay. Like, I don't yeah. actually want to join them. I, I kind of know what's going on in their minds if they were honest about it. Like, I think yeah. I can guess. So. For sure. And I think that's so important not to try to ignore or push those thoughts away, you know, because they just stay, they just bury and they just, you know, intensify, especially when you just try to like squash that, but approaching it head on and say, okay, is this really true? Is it really true that I'm missing out? You know, what would it really feel like if I was to have one? Would I stop at one? What would it feel like to have five? How, how would this day go? How would tomorrow go? You know, really asking yourselves those questions and finding out what's true. Um, it, it eliminates it instead of burying that energy of like temptation and, yeah. and not, you know, allowing it to kind of purge. Yeah, it totally does. Like I, I imagine like them waking up the next day or going home and just taking a nap after the pool and waking up and feeling terrible and all this stuff. Like, I'm like, I know how that feels. I know how that's going to go. I know the end of the story. So I don't want to, I just see the fun part of the story, but you don't just get that. You get the whole thing. Um, so I, I'm, I think I'm able to see that. And the more, obviously the more times I go through things without the alcohol and do the debrief and think about it myself, like that, I feel like you're, I'm kind of developing legs where I can just yeah. walk. Like I'm like a toddler right now, but I'm like starting to learn what, how to do this without like, um, I think, you know, in a couple of years, I'll be able to go to things with, go to things without even thinking about it, like ahead of time. Like, yeah. I just have to kind of be a little bit prepared mentally before I go to things now. Yeah. And I think it's so important just to do the reps and understand, like approach everything with curiosity, you know, and not with judgment of if you, I think another thing that you could do in that situation is have a, oh, it looks like fun to have a drink at the pool and then judge yourself and beat yourself up. Oh, it's been six months. Why am I still thinking this? Oh my gosh, I thought I'd be over this by now. This is great. This isn't even working. And all that toxicity and negativity can come up and really snowball it as well. You know, yeah. so really being like, oh, okay, that's a thought pattern. That's interesting. I wonder if that's true. Yeah. And just really like acceptance and curiosity and judgment and, and bringing really like mindfulness to yeah the questions or to the habitual thoughts that pop up. I think I, I think I went through that with the eating disorder. I learned those techniques and I'm able to apply that now. So I think I was able to get it faster. So like, um, because with like, with the eating disorder, I would always like beat myself up for like, I would, you know, binge and then I would beat myself up. And then like my husband was actually the one to show kind of open my eyes to the fact that like beating myself up was just as harmful as the thing I just did. I found, I've just got myself in a hole. Like I'm wrapped up in so much shame. I can't like undo it. <laughs> so like one of the steps I did learn back then was not to get, um, not beat myself up about what I just did to understand that I'm just trying to take care of myself. Like I have these feelings that come up and I'm trying to take care of myself and maybe I'm not taking my care of myself in the way that it's going to actually help, but I'm on this progress. Like I'm learning how to take care of myself. So I stopped beating myself up. I realized that like when I would pray about things, it kind of occurred to me when like, I'd say, oh, I'm so sorry, God, that I did this. Like, oh. and it kind of occurred to me, he's on my side, Like, he just wants to help me. Like, and so I think I've been able to apply that with alcohol and I've not beaten myself up that much about it just, but I've already been there. 
So I could see where other people are really going to have to like learn how to do that and have compassion and realize that you're just trying to take care of yourself and you're learning what's the best way to take care of yourself. And sometimes we use negative coping mechanisms and we don't know that we're actually doing more harm than good. And it's going to take a while to, to learn how to, you know, take care of ourselves the right way. But um, beating yourself up and, and putting, pouring all the shame on yourself is another way to, um, to actually harm yourself. It really harms your identity and your feelings of uh, well-being. So I think I've, I, I think I'm starting to learn that. It's so cool. I mean, I think that what you said is so profound because really what we're doing, especially with, you know, the quote mommy wine culture is, is we're just doing the best we can with the tools we have. Mm-hmm. We're trying to navigate doing all the things, being all the people, you know, having all the obligations, trying to be the best parent we can be, trying to be the best, whether we're working or not working, you know, whatever it is, we're trying to do the best. And guess what? The entire society and culture, and by the way, the people we trust most in the world, our mom friends, we're all telling each other, here's a tool that works and let's 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 pass it around right and so there shouldn't be guilt or shame in that there should just be this recognition of like oh I was just doing the best I could for myself with the tools that I have I just now know that that tool was not actually serving me and that's awesome and I think then you know really being able to stay not only judgment out of judgment of ourselves but make sure that we stay then out of judgment of people are still still in it still yeah. using that tool, you know, because I, I do see that sometimes on Instagram or where, where it goes the other way. And then it's almost shaming moms for drinking. And it's like, okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like that's yeah. exactly not where we need to be going, right? Like nobody needs to be piling shame upon any of this. I mean, it's one of the most destructive and harmful emotions on the planet. And as soon as we start to shame ourselves or shame other people or judge other people, I mean, we are just like, it is inviting so much negativity. And, mm-hmm. um, and what do we do when we feel bad? We drink. So it's, it just perpetuates this cycle. And I think you're absolutely right that the way out of it is really just this kind of feeling of acceptance that you're doing what you could do. You are taking care of yourself the best way you know how. And um, now you're learning to take care of yourself a different way. And every day it's just a learning thing. One of the things that I started doing um, recently to really just help myself because it, it's funny. I've, I've been watching my thoughts for a long time now, years, and noticing what I'm saying in my head and gotten really good at noticing the voice, right? Mm-hmm. And noticing when the voice isn't saying something helpful. And yeah. now the voice is pretty positive. She's, she's in a good place. But then what I realized is that there's actually things that aren't being vocalized that are still negative, like so judgment. So if I wake up in the morning and I'm like, oh, another day I didn't work out. But I don't actually think that. I don't actually verbalize it. I don't actually vocalize it. I just have this feeling of regret mm-hmm. that I didn't, you know, um, you know, mark off my workout or whatever the case is. And so it's, it's not actually a thought. It's just this habitual kind of negativity towards myself. I was like, wow, how do you, how do you handle that? Because they're not actually thoughts that you can catch. They're just these like impulses, almost this negative impulse of judging myself for not doing something. Anyway, one of the things that I started doing um, is just like countering that with like, wait a second, I'm going to find something I'm proud of myself for right in this moment. Mm -hmm. If it's that I'm proud of myself that I I woke up and my eyes are open because like, instead of turning back over and falling back asleep, then I'm proud of myself for that. If I'm proud of myself because um, I even had the thought that I should work out, which means I have intention for being healthier, then I'm going to be proud of myself for that. You know, I, 
And I'd be like, I'm really proud of you. And just saying it out loud inside my own brain of, you know, just trying to counteract that and finding something. Because I think in every single moment, no matter what, we can find points of pride. Like, even if, if the point of pride is just saying, wow, I'm proud of you because you're, again, beating ourselves up. And I'm kind of going on a tangent here, but beating ourselves up, just like wine, is a tool that we use because we don't know any better, right? Yeah, yeah. We're going to beat ourselves up and we're going to achieve an outcome by beating ourselves up. <laughs> we're trying to use it as a tool to get ourselves to where we want to go. So you can be even proud of yourself for beating yourself up. It's like, whoa, <laughs> that's not a helpful tool, but I'm proud of you because that shows so much intention that you want to show up as your best you, you know, and just really flip that. So anyway, that's just really helped me recently. Yeah, yeah. So cool. Well, thank you so much, Kelly. I, I um, really appreciate you sharing your story and, and being, uh, being here, being so honest. Well, you're welcome. I'm honored to share it if it helps anybody. Like I listen to your podcast all the time just because I feel like the more I hear about other people and their journeys, it, it helps me feel like I'm not alone. Like I don't know a lot of people. I actually don't know anybody that is on this journey in Nashville right now. But I mean, when I listen to your podcast, I feel like, oh my gosh, I could be friends with her and her and her and we have so much common. I just feel like I can be part of something. So if this helps anybody at all, it's, it's totally worth it. That's awesome. And if you haven't, you should go into, um, there's two Facebook groups, the alcohol experiment group or the naked mind group and just post like who's from Nashville. Cause I mean, yeah. I think those groups are like 10,000 people. I know there's people from Nashville. So be cool. I'll do that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, but awesome. Well, thank you so much. And, uh, yeah, just have a wonderful day. Okay. You too. Thank you, Annie. Bye. Bye. Are you looking to connect with like-minded people? Sometimes maybe you feel like as someone who knows all this information from the snake in mind or the alcohol experiment that you're living in a world of muggles and people just don't speak your language. That is why I created The Exchange. The Exchange is an online community where we meet face-to-face, -face, live video calls multiple times a week with people from all over the globe just to connect, to have somewhere you're seen and you're heard and you feel less alone and really that you can give back and get the support you need. So if this sounds great to you, check it out at thisnakedmind.com backslash exchange. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today.